From Audio Boom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. Fifteen seconds. Guidance is internal. Ten, nine, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again and welcome to the Space Nuts podcast with me, Andrew Dunkley, and my partner in crime from the Australian Astronomical Observatory is Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. <laughs> Hi, Andrew. And uh, today the pair of criminals are actually in the same place. <laughs> Fred was just passing through and we were due to do a podcast and he's dropped into my there humble little office, which is just a bit bigger than an average household toilet. And <laughs> here we are. Welcome. Thank you for for coming to see me. That's great. I don't get many visitors. <laughs> no, I can tell. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, great to see you. How long's it been? Uh, quite a while. Um, I, who knows? A couple of years at least. Oh, easily. easily. <laughs> Maybe yeah. even five years. Yeah, because you used to come to our radio station I when did. we broadcast yeah. together every month. That's right. That was decades ago. We got sick of each other. and yeah. <laughs> We used to go for lunch. We had a great time. We, it was yeah. a great system. Was, we had it, it all good. worked out. Indeed, yeah. indeed we did. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, here we are. And it's, and it's really good to see you, honestly. I, you're looking <laughs> well. True. You're looking fantastic. <laughs> well, at least still alive. That's yeah, the thing. that's the most important thing. Hmm. Now, today, we're going to talk about the, um, the disastrous landing of Schiaparelli uh, on Mars the other day, which unfortunately didn't go according to plan. We're also going to look at supermassive black holes because they're trying to figure them out. Yes. <laughs> and then we're going to look at uh, a couple of uh, Chinese, we'll call them astronauts, but that's not what they are, uh, who have just um, gone up to spend a month in space, which uh, I imagine would be a lot of fun. But I also think, ultimately you'd find there's a lot of downtime. And I reckon, you know, you can't go for a walk around the block or have a game of golf and you can't, you know, they can't even play ping pong. So it's... No, not really. It's, go it's going to be interesting for them. But let's start with Scaparelli. That uh, probe that they were landing on Mars the other day seems to have uh, fallen foul of some kind of uh, uh, catastrophic failure uh, yet to be determined, but... Um, What's done is done, but uh, there's now evidence to basically prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the, the poor thing yeah. hit the ground at something like 300 kilometres an hour instead of, right. instead of landing softly like a feather. Yeah, like a feather, that's right. Mm. So you're quite right, Andrew. The, um, the Schiaparelli lander, uh, which was only a sort of test version, it was to test the landing techniques... <laughs> That sort of has a slight <laughs> irony about it. And yet, and yet, the European Space Agency say it was 80% successful. Yeah, um, I'm trying to figure out how. <laughs> well, I suppose they successfully landed. They, they certainly landed, <laughs> they yeah. did. But they did get onto the, the planet's surface, but... Indeed, and actually within about a kilometre of where they wanted to touch down, or something like that. It's fairly mm. close to the time. Well, in universal it's, terms, it's that's damn close. Within the, it's within the drop zone. Um, the... 
The reason why they quote 80% is because they had telemetry back from the lander for 80% of its uh, descent onto the Martian surface. So it's the last 20% of that 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 went missing. Apparently what happened was the the entry into Mars' atmosphere functioned perfectly. That's the the aerobraking process where the the heat shield takes the brunt of the buffeting of the the Martian atmosphere as it comes in. It's how spacecraft re-enter the Earth's atmosphere as well, uh, with a heat shield that dissipates the enormous heat of the fact that it hits the atmosphere at six kilometres per second and that causes friction that's got to go somewhere. Mm. So that slows it down. Then the parachutes deployed, and they've they deployed successfully, but apparently were jettisoned far too soon. Um, I, I don't know how long they were supposed to be deployed for, but it, it was much shorter than that. So, of course, as soon as the parachutes are jettisoned, the thing's in free fall, yeah. and it's now maybe four kilometres still above the Martian surface, maybe even more. And at that Um, Well, after the parachutes had done their work, what's supposed to happen next is the retro rockets fire, nine retro rockets that were around the periphery of the Schiaparelli lander. They fired okay, but instead of firing for 30 seconds, they burned for about three or four. Um, Mm. So something went wrong there too. And of course, everything then cuts out and it expects to do a belly flop onto the Martian surface from two metres, but actually it's still, you know, something like three to four kilometres above the surface. So it's uh, more than a belly flop. It's a pretty smash-up landing. Yeah, and and I suppose the question is, how did two things go catastrophically wrong? Two seemingly separate... That's uh, functionalities right. of the of the craft. Yeah. A parachute that, that came loose. I'm guessing someone didn't know how to tie a reef <laughs> knot. Uh, and then the, the retro rockets not firing for long enough. However, uh, I suppose the burning of the retro rockets is irrelevant given that the parachute yeah. didn't carry it down low enough for them to be effective anyway. That's right. And look, it may well be, that could be, you know, you probably put your finger on it there, that it's that one thing going wrong then has a sort of consequence that causes the other thing to go wrong. So maybe the um, the, the, the parachute, uh, whatever caused the parachute to to be jettisoned early, and it, I think they used double bowlines actually rather than <laughs> reef knot. <laughs> anyway, I'll whatever find, it was. I find uh, the reef knot much more handy. <laughs> yeah, it would be. Anyway, whatever it was, it's, it's almost certainly something mechanical or software error caused the parachute to be jettisoned. Then the, the rockets fire, but maybe there's a sensor that says, whoa, you're far too high for this to be happening. Shut them down. Uh-huh. We, uh, who knows what, what it could be? And um, We will find out, I'm sure. Um, we, so, so that information would have been recorded? It was part of, yes, that's right, uh-huh. because I think, um, I think they, 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 they sort of lost contact during the, during the lower part of the descent. Mm. Um, as you said, uh, the Mars Re- Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is a NASA spacecraft, has already imaged what is now believed with a fair degree of certainty to be the wreckage of Schiaparelli. Uh, there's, a, there's a kind of dark hole in the landscape. Uh, we've only seen monochrome black and white images so far. But that, um, with uh, about 800 metres away, is a, is a white blob, which is thought to be the parachute. Um, as we speak, as we go to air with this podcast... Uh, NASA are taking high-resolution images with the there's a camera called HiRISE, mm. something like high-resolution science experiment or something. It's, it's carried on board Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter that can see detail down to as little as uh, 30 centimeters.
metres, a foot in the old measure, oh, that's uh, good. compared with a much coarser view that the, uh, the p pictures we've got so far have got. So hopefully we'll be able to see um, a lot more of the detail of what's on the surface. I suspect there's not much left of the land. No, it, it, well, if it hit at the speed that they suggest, yeah. 300 kilometres an hour, it would have been yeah, it's, a cataclysmic impact. Yeah, that's right. And, I mean, mm. so debris could be spread over quite a wide It's wide a very, area. very expensive experiment. Yeah. There's, there's actually another... There is one other interesting component of this, though, and that is that because the rocket motors only fired for such a short time, that means that Schiaparelli had almost a full load of fuel when it hit the ground. So it's, it's probably an explosion as well, oh. which not so it's not just the force of the impact. There might well have been an, an explosion. It could be why what we've seen so far has been a kind of dark patch on Mars's surface, although that could also just be the fact that it's disturbed the surface dust of Mars. Yeah, it's hard to tell from a, a scratchy black and yeah, white, but the evidence is that the area photographed didn't have that there last time that's right yeah so yeah, exactly so there's been a, a it's clearly process. obvious that something something significant happened, happened. Yeah. Um, what was it supposed to do if it got on the ground successfully it, it had um, something like four martian days worth of battery power that would that there were no solar panels it was a you know it's a fairly low budget item because mm. what they were really testing was the technology to get it down on the ground um, but there was uh, something like four days of battery power to do various tests uh, atmospheric composition weather situation how much dust in the atmosphere because mars is a very dusty environment um, no real sampling of the of the earth on which it sat or should i say the regolith on which it yes. sat, that's the martian regolith is the name for the soil however that we've got to mention this andrew because the mission overall has been successful because the other component of it which is much more important than scaparelli is the orbiter, trace gas orbiter, which has now gone into orbit around Mars. And that is a, a spacecraft that's got, I think, several years of work ahead of it. That's successfully been deployed. What's really interesting is what that's going to reveal about Mars, because one of its key tasks is to investigate trace gas in Mars's atmosphere, things like methane, which mysteriously comes and goes in Mars's atmosphere. Mm. And methane on Earth, most of the methane in the Earth's atmosphere is uh, it's produced by living organisms. Yeah. It's biologically in origin. Now that, of course, you can't draw the draw the bow that um, that means that the Marsh, Martian methane is is from methanogenic uh, microbes, for example, or something like that, from life processes, because it could be uh, volcanic in origin. Um, you know, if there's residual volcanism going on, you know, stuff going on way down on the surface that lets the gas seep out to the surface, maybe that's where it's coming from. It's not beyond the realms of probability, really. But, I mean, Earth leaks like a sieve. <laughs> so this, It does. And, and even though Mars seemingly is not nearly as active as Earth, that doesn't mean it's not leaking a little bit. No, that's right. I mean, Mars has no plate tectonics, and that's mm. why we don't have the volcanism that, that we see on the Earth with you know, the ring of fire and all the rest of it. It's, um, it's a very much um, quieter world, seismologically than the Earth is. Uh, but, yes, there could still be traces of stuff going on deep down under the surface, which seeps up. We will find out. Yes, so the most important part of that mission was, was successful. deployed successfully. Yeah. So the landing bit that 
was to teach them about landing it was an absolute dud, but they might learn something oh, they from that. Absolutely will, yeah. <laughs> because it, it's um, that was a precursor to um, a lander in 2020 or 2021, which is the second part of the ExoMars project. This is a rover, yes. six wheels, and a probe to dig down something like two metres into the Martian soil. So you can pretty much guarantee they won't make the same mistake you twice. You would hope not. You would hope, definitely <laughs> hope not. All right, we'll watch with interest, and hopefully we will find out what happened. Find out more, yeah. And uh, yeah, there's lots still to learn. And the Space Nuts will be the first to hear about it. Yes, I hope so. You are listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Roger, you're live. We're here also. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, let's move on to supermassive black holes, which are brilliantly named because I'd say they're black holes that are supermassive in size. (laughs) So there's no, you know, yeah, needing no to it, really. No yes. needing to explain. But what makes them supermassive compared to a supernormal black a hole? Black hole. Yeah, I mean, um, the black holes seem to come in two kinds. Um, ones that are maybe thirty to forty times the mass of the sun, and we think they're formed when a, a massive star reaches the end of its life and explodes, and the this nuclear part, of the nucleus of the star, if you like, the core of the star, collapses on itself to form a black hole, which is defined as a point in the universe where density is infinite. That's what the definition of a black hole is. It's a right. point of infinite d- density. Hmm. It, it's totally counterintuitive. We can't imagine anything that is of infinite density. We can imagine things that are very dense. I mean, a lump of lead is very dense, got a high number of grams per cubic centimetre. But take that number I know up a to... couple of kids I went to school with. Uh, <laughs> that's much uh, the same. That's right. Well, their mass divided by their volume is probably, <laughs> yeah, probably about right. But, but um, in, in, um, in uh, a black hole, <clears throat> it's infinite. However, that doesn't mean that it's got zero mass because the uh, what happens with a black hole is stuff gets sucked into it, as you know. Mm. Only stuff that happens to be relatively near it. It's not... that they, they don't roam through the cosmos gobbling up stuff. They, Which is what we used to think. <clears throat> we did think that, yeah. But, but the gas that's near them tends to swirl around it and form what we call an accretion disk. This is a disk of material that's kind of swirling around. And this is where we all get the, the <clears throat> that, that lovely... Um, um, metaphor of the of the water going down the plug hole because it swirls around a lot like that as it disappears into the black hole mm. and that causes the mass of the gra- the black hole to increase so we got these smaller black holes 30 to 40 times the mass of the sun we understand we think how they come about but when you look at galaxies most galaxies and these are huge aggregations of hundreds of billions of stars and gas and dust swirling around Uh, often with this beautiful spiral structure like our own galaxy has. When we look at those galaxies, we find evidence that possibly all of them, we don't know this for certain, but most seem to have a black hole at the centre, which is what we call a supermassive one, because suddenly you're in a regime where you're talking about millions of times the Mm. mass of the sun, not just 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 times the mass of the sun, millions of times. In fact, the biggest ones are actually billions of times the mass of the sun. How did they get like that? What is it that causes black holes to grow? Did they, did they form as supermassive black holes before the galaxy assembled around it? Or what was the structure? So a lot of work is going into trying to understand these supermassive black holes. And by the way, just to tie up the loop, we have one at the centre of our own galaxy. I was going to get to that, but yeah. I, I, yeah, I think we've 
brought it up before. Um, yeah, yeah. We've yeah. talked about it. We've brought it up. That's yeah. Well, we don't. <laughs> really, we don't really want it <laughs> coming back up. No, no we don't. No. So um, it's, it's um, yeah. It's it's about three point six million times the mass of the sun. So it's, it it counts and it is classified as a supermassive black hole. How do we know that? Incidentally, we know it because um, when you look towards the centre of our galaxy, you've got to use infrared telescopes because you've got to be able to penetrate the dust that lies between ourselves and the centre of the galaxy. We can't do that very well from Siding Spring Observatory in Coonabarabran. We can penetrate dust with with infrared light to a certain extent, but we're actually better at looking at things in the visible region of the spectrum. Mm. Anyway, um, at other telescopes, most notably in Chile, they have penetrated the dust and observed stars very close to the centre of the galaxy um, and have realised that these stars, uh, if you track their motion over a number of years, and they've been looking at these for about 20 years now, you can actually see them orbiting around a point which apparently contains nothing. A point of nothing, yeah. A point of nothingness. And the, and the only thing that that can be is the black hole. And because you can men- measure the motion of the stars, you can actually deduce the mass of the black hole. Um, that's all orbital dynamics. Johannes Kepler, back in 1619, would have been able to do that calculation. Wow, really? Yeah. That's oh, amazing. Yeah, it was a supermassive black hole. It, it, would be, it clearly didn't have the data, but well, it would that, have that, been... A... That's how, it's a bit of a sideline, but that's how a lot of discoveries astronomically have been made simply through a mathematical understanding that something should be there because yeah. because the numbers don't add up Otherwise, if there's nothing there. Exactly right, that's right. That's so, how we know about dark matter, for yeah, example. Yeah. Yeah. So, how do these things grow? How do you get these supermassive black holes? And that brings us to the story that we're talking about today, which is, has come from researchers in Japan. And uh, what they've done is they've looked at... Uh, black holes are in a, a number of galaxies, these supermassive black holes, and they found a correlation between the rate of star formation, that's to say uh, how many new stars are being formed, because galaxies like ours do form stars. Uh, there's a correlation between that and the mass of the black hole. Uh, and, and so the theory is that star formation uh, is a process that, It creates normal stars, but it also creates these supermassive ones as well. And they have a very short life. They only go for a few million years Mm. before they explode as uh, as a um, basically a a, a supernova. That's what we call exploding stars Um, and probably create their own little neutron stars. But they create debris, which is spread throughout their environment. But more especially, they create shock waves and those shock waves are probably in some way shepherding gas in towards the black hole and allowing it to grow more rapidly. So there's this um, correlation that, uh, that means that you can link the amount of star formation that's going on in a galaxy with the mass of its black hole. And that The more active a galaxy is in forming stars, the bigger its black hole seems to be. So that's what they're... That's right. Studying. Indeed. Uh, they've used uh, the ALMA telescope, the Atacama Large Millimeter Array. Uh, I um, visited that last year mm. and um, they wouldn't let me in. <laughs> but that's all right. I, I haven't got any kind of appointment. I just said, 
firm, an astronomer from Australia. Oh yes, mate, pulled the other leg. <laughs> it wasn't quite. Like, it wasn't quite like. That. It was. Oh, so we cannot let anybody. They yeah. couldn't let anybody. Yeah. You know. No. But but I did see. It. It's a fantastic um, array of uh, millimeter wave telescopes. It's at um, altitudes above, well above four thousand meters. So it's actually really tough to breathe up there. Yeah. Uh, but but yes, it's um, it's very close to a place called San Pedro de Atacama, mm. which is in. Uh, in Chile. So the possibility is that we're going to learn a lot more about supermassive yes, black holes. Right. This seems to be a key to uh, maybe uh, understanding them a bit better. Mm. And, and just one final point, I suppose. Uh, we, we, you mentioned that it's possible there's one of these at the centre of perhaps every galaxy. Yeah. Uh, was, wasn't so long ago that we didn't think there were any planets other than our own in this particular yes, right. solar system right. so yeah. and now we're finding them everywhere so yeah. it stands to reason that supermassive no, black right. holes are everywhere too. commonplace yeah mm. yeah it's they're really interesting objects and of course they're very exciting in terms of the energies that they release because they um, w- with this um, this accretion process that I mentioned before this swirling disk of material that's been gobbled up by a black hole one consequence of that which is completely c- counterintuitive is that they shoot jets of material up from their poles. Yes. So north and south, while they're gobbling stuff up from the equator, they're shooting stuff up from the poles. That's um, uh, actually more a product of the magnetic fields that the um, the black holes generate. The magnetic field kind of sweeps up material from the accretion disk and squirts it out along a very um, well-defined beam that's sort of um, basically set up by the magnetic field of the black hole. It certainly makes for some amazing astronomical photography. It, indeed, that's right. Yeah, some of the images of these things are quite, yeah, quite they're, they're spectacular. Mm. Indeed. Right. More to come on that. Indeed. This is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Zero G and I feel fine. Space Nuts. Now, finally, Fred, we're looking at uh, one of the newer superpowers in uh, space, and that is China. Uh, for a very long time, it was uh, the Soviet Union slash Russia, the United States, and they basically had a monopoly or an oligopoly, if you like, over <laughs> over space yeah. exploration. Yeah. Um, then ESA sort of came into play, the Europe- European Space Agency. Now you've got India. Now you've got China. They're all becoming huge players in this marketplace as well as the private sector which is starting to make a yeah. dent as well yeah. um, we've just seen uh, two we're calling them astronauts from China but what are they actually I think the name is Taikonauts but Taikonauts I, yeah, I, I kind of like that it is it's a good one yeah but yeah. I, I should check that <laughs> <laughs> mm. But we'll call them astronauts for now. I mean, the R- Russian uh, and Soviet uh, uh, astronauts were called cosmonauts. Of exactly. Course. So yeah. there was a distinction there. That's mm. To give them their correct. So um, they're um, going to spend a month in space. Indeed, yes. They, so they went up a week or so ago in a spacecraft called Shenzhou Eleven. So this is a. It's, a, it's basically the Chinese workhorse. Um, like uh, the Russian Soyuz. It, it's based very heavily on the Soyuz spacecraft. I think it's almost. A copy of a Soyuz spacecraft, uh, but made by the Chinese and 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 used with their Long March rocket series. These are heavy lift rockets that can take these things up to low Earth orbit. Mm. So um, a month or so ago, they placed in orbit robotically with no no crew on board 
um, their space station, their small space station, uh, which uh, is basically, it's called, uh, it's, it's actually called Tiangong 2, which I think means Heavenly Palace. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Tiangong 1 uh, was visited uh, back in 2013 by, I think, three Chinese astronauts who spent something like two weeks on board it. Um, Tiangong 1 is actually slightly controversial because some uh, space uh, analysts believe it's out of control now ah. uh, and that its orbit is decaying and that it will make an uncontrolled re-entry sometime in the second half of next year. Uh, there are other pundits in the space world who say, no, no, these guys... Everything's fine. Everything's fine. They'll Nothing to see here. <laughs> so it's, it's a question of... Uh, whether you've still got you know, control of the spacecraft to actually determine whereabouts it re-enters the Earth's atmosphere. It, because what you want to do is bring it down over something like the Pacific, because this is quite big, it's 11 tonnes, if I remember rightly, um, and some of that could, could, actually, um, could actually penetrate the atmosphere to get to the surface. So you really want to have it as far away from um, any human habitation as possible. Sounds a bit Skylab-ish. It's very Skylabish, that's mm. right. And so we, we'll wait to see what happens with that uh, middle of next year is when it's, when it's thought that it will re-enter. So meanwhile, uh, Tiangong-2 has been launched by the Chinese about, as I said, about a month ago. And that is now um, inhabited by the two Chinese astronauts. I hope they get along. Uh, I do too. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, as I said earlier... A month. It, it, it's probably really exciting for them to get up there and get in there but when they get the ping pong paddles out or whatever they're going to do, they'll find that it's it's a small space. They can't yeah, go for a run it, that's around right. the block. It's they... nothing like the space station, yeah. which of course. So the space station is a is a, a multinational venture led by NASA, Roscosmos, the Russian space agency, and ESA, the European space agency. This is very much a Chinese venture. Mm. But you've really got to hand it to these guys, though, because I mean, the, the achievement that they've made, the Chinese have demonstrated this already with Tiangong-1, uh, and that is the process of rendezvous and docking, uh, which is not, you know, straightforward. We all think in terms of, yes, two spacecraft coming together and people docking them together and climbing from one to the other. But the, the Chinese are the, only the third nation in the world to do that, other than the Americans and the and the Russians. Mm. Um, so it, it is, um, you know, it, there's a big feather in their cap from that. It took, uh, I mean, when you think back to the Apollo space program, the principal function of the Gemini missions, you might remember there were, there were the Mercury missions, which were the very first part of it, one crew member, a few orbits of the Earth, and then re uh, return. Uh, but Gemini, the, the second part, which preceded the actual Apollo missions themselves, was all about um, this rendezvous and docking process. So there were two-person capsules, and there were 12 Gemini missions, uh, and many of them were flying simultaneously, so the guys could you know, bring their spacecraft yeah. together um, and practice this whole technology of, of rendezvous in orbit and, and bringing the spacecraft together. A very far from a straightforward process, mm. but the Chinese have done it, and clearly done it successfully. Gosh, you know, if, if everybody who's in the in the industry now were to get together yeah. and collaborate <laughs> what could we achieve well that's right i mean i suppose the chinese have got the um, the advantage of, of 21st century computing power and things like that which True. In, the, in 1965 when gemini was at its peak uh, was certainly not the case well the computers on spacecraft in the in the 60s uh, 
you would laugh at in your house now. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, we wish them well, and I'm sure there'll be more to tell about uh, China in space in uh, the weeks, years, and months yeah, to come, right. months and years to come. So uh, there, there's certainly people to to watch out for. Uh, and I, I love their names. The, the naming of their um, their craft is, is astonishing. Of course, if Australia was in the space race, we'd be, you know, sending up Outhouse 1 yeah. <laughs> or Thunderbox <Yeah>. 2. Yeah. <laughs> it would be a bit of a problem. Yeah, well, you know, people would get... They would get that. Yeah. I mean, we've got that in the world of astronomy. We've got surveys. Uh, um, there's Wallaby and Emu are two surveys. Uh, they, they all have... These acronyms all mean something. I'm involved with a survey called Taipan, and another one called funnel web so. <laughs> <laughs> very native animals to stay yeah, away from in right. this country exactly. most, yeah. most yeah. definitely tells you all you need to know <laughs> yeah fred lovely to catch up with you in person yeah great for the pleasure. first time in good, ages good so, to be here yeah sharing a microphone <laughs> yeah indeed thank you so much and we'll catch up again real soon we will indeed that's fred watson from the australian astronomical observatory thank you for listening to the space nuts podcast and don't forget to keep in, ch- in touch with us Actually, Fred had someone walk up to him personally the other day and say, oh, listen to your podcast. That was Luke. Hi, Luke. How are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> he was screaming like a teenage girl at a rock concert too, apparently. Fred, not Luke. Anyway, uh, that's it from us. Uh, yeah, Keep in touch with us via Facebook. Don't forget to review us on iTunes. Uh, share the podcast with your friends. Pass it around and uh, uh, the more the merrier. We, uh, we really enjoy your feedback. Until next time, thank you again for listening to... Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. From Audioboom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies soldiers, and top-secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify, or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.